Well, last week we laid some very important groundwork for a short study that we are in the middle of on financial stewardship. And in so doing last week, we looked at four absolutely vital components. I want to review those uh, with you for a moment. First of all, we examined the meaning of stewardship. Very simply put, a steward is someone who takes care of something. Then we turned our attention to the model of biblical stewardship. One writer says that stewardship is the responsibility to manage all the resources of life for the glory of God. Third, we looked at the marks of stewardship. And we learned that a God-centered steward is a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who is faithful, unselfish, generous, and has a passion to make God look great. And then finally, we examined the magnitude of stewardship. And we learned, and we will build on this today, we learned that God entrusts gifts to people who in turn are called to be good stewards of that trust. Today I want to take you one step farther. I want to press in a bit further and lead you through a strategy for developing what I like to call a personal theology of biblical stewardship. Before we do that, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that the statistics on tithing in the local church, most notably in America, are absolutely horrible. They're just not good. One researcher says that tithers make up only 10 to 25 percent of a typical local congregation in America. He says that only 5 percent of the U.S. tithes. Now notice, with 80 percent of Americans only giving about 2 percent of their income. Let me read that again and and let you digest it. Only 5 percent of the U.S. tithes with 80 percent of those who give, only giving 2% of their income. Additionally, Christians are only giving at 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression, they gave approximately 3.3%. I find that fascinating. One study estimates that if Christians increased their giving to 10% of their income, there would be, mark these words, an additional $165 billion for churches to distribute and use in ministry. That's not $165 million. That's $165 billion. I'm convinced that one of the reasons... One of the most important reasons for this horrible statistic, for the statistic that giving is at such a low point in the American church, is that many Christians have not taken the time to do what we're going to do today, to develop, to work out a personal theology of biblical stewardship. As I unpack these principles for you this morning, remember this, that our approach to the Christian life is never driven by feelings. Our approach to the Christian life is never driven by emotion. Rather, our approach to the Christian life is driven exclusively by God's written word. John Frame says it like this. He says, the central message in Scripture is that God is the Lord. 
That's an important way to introduce this, this sermon. That's an important way to introduce really any sermon. To remember that the central message of Scripture is that God is Lord. Now, the implications of this statement by Dr. Frame are absolutely massive. For if the central message of Scripture is that God is Lord, this means that as, as the creatures, our responsibility then is to submit to His Lordship. In fact, to do any less would be tantamount to cosmic treason. Failing to submit to his lordship suggests a number of things. It suggests that we lack trust in his goodness, that we lack trust in his grace, that we lack trust in his plans, and that we lack trust in his authority. I pray that we are of a, a different ilk here this morning at Christ Fellowship. I pray that, that we are among those who not only profess the faith, but live the faith. That we embrace this, this saying of Dr. Frame that the central message of Scripture is that God is the Lord. And because He is the Lord, that I and you and I have a desire, a passion to submit to His Lordship. That we have a passion to obey his word. And so with those thoughts in mind, we join me in prayer as we go to the word of God. Our Father, thank you for all that you're teaching us as a church family. I pray that as we continue to explore these principles of financial stewardship, that we would remember, that we would realize that, that you are Lord, that you are our authority, and that our desires, our passions are to submit to you, to obey you, and that we would find great delight is that we, in, in keeping with your word. Father, I pray that, that you would uh, instruct us today by the power of your spirit. Help us as we build this very important framework for a personal theology of financial stewardship. We do it for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me begin this morning by talking about the power of a paradigm shift, the power of a paradigm shift. It was many, many years ago that I read a book and a story that took place in a subway in New York City. And as people were quietly reading their newspapers and attending to their personal business, the man who relayed the details of the story said this. He said it was a calm, peaceful, serene event. All of a sudden, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were loud and rambunctious, which changed the whole climate. It was no longer peace and calm and serene. And the man who recounts this tale says, The other man sat down next to me and he closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing at people's papers. It was all very disturbing. Amen and amen. And yet, the man sitting next to me did absolutely nothing. The man continues. He says it was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild and do nothing about it, taking absolutely no responsibility whatsoever. It's easy to see that everyone else in the subway on that train felt irritated too. And so finally, the man reports... What I felt was unusual patience and restraint. I turned to him and I said, Sir, 
your children are very disturbing. They're bothering a lot of people. I was wondering if you could just control them a little bit more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to consciousness of the situation for the first time. And he said these words. He said, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess my children don't know how to handle it either. Well, this story is an absolutely stunning example of the power of a paradigm shift. You see, a paradigm is a mental map. It's the way you view the world. It's the way you view reality. It's the way we we view life. And the man who is irritated in this story, and I hope that you were irritated with him. Would you raise your hand if you were irritated with him? So I don't feel bad. I was the only one. I remember first reading that story. I'm like, shut those kids up. (laughs) I'm trying to read here. And then he finds that these poor children had lost their mother. So the man who was irritated in the story went from irritation to sympathy and compassion in a split second. He experienced what we call the power of a paradigm shift. In the same way, I believe that we as a church need to experience the power of a paradigm shift when it comes to matters of financial stewardship. And so I trust that you will experience today the power of this paradigm shift as we work hard to develop a personal theology of financial stewardship. I want to have young people pay extra close attention, have even children pay attention, because the way I have crafted the sermon is in such a way that that every person can remember three very important steps of financial stewardship. As we begin to build or to construct this theology of financial stewardship, I want to begin like this before we get to step one. Before we get to step one, it's important that I say that every Everyone who takes time to construct a biblical theology of financial stewardship needs to begin at the right point. And the point is with God. We need to begin with God. Now, there are a series of scriptures that I want to encourage you to think about and to meditate upon. And you will see that most of the sermons we preach at Christ Fellowship, while from time to time we'll put scriptures on the screen, we usually don't. And there's a very important reason for that. Here's the reason. Because we are becoming more and more biblically illiterate in our culture. How many of you recognize? You see it all the time. The pastor says, turn to the book of Genesis. And you you see someone fumbling around at the end near Revelation. You see, turn to the book of Romans. and, And most people in our culture don't know if Romans is in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And so we don't, we don't want to bait the hook, as it will, and, 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 and cause you to be a lazy Christ follower. So I will put the references on the screen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles and look with these verses with me. Let's begin with God in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. The Word of God says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven 
and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Now, we're going to look at several scriptures this morning, and what I want to challenge you to do is see if you can figure out what the common theme is in these verses. Turn now with me to First Chronicles, to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29, reading in verse 11. The Word of God once again says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as the head above all. Come with me now to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 16. The Bible says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for this building, building you a house for your holy name, comes from your hand, and all is your own. Move with me to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24, and read with me in verses 1 and 2. And I, I hope as we read these passages, you're, you're seeing a theme emerge. There's a very important theme, and we'll, we'll uh, nail it here in just a moment. But in Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas, and established it, Upon the rivers. Move over a few chapters to Psalm chapter 50. Psalm chapter 50, and read with me in verses 10 and 11. The scripture says, For every beast of the forest is mine. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know of all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Psalm chapter 89, verse 11. Psalm 89, verse 11. Once again, the psalmist says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you founded them. And you don't need to turn there, but I would have you consider Job chapter 41, verse 11, where we read, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. We have many babies in Christ, Christ Fellowship right now, do we not? I mean, it's like almost every other month a new baby is being born. It's an exciting thing. And one of the first words that you will hear from the, the mouth of a baby is the word mine. It's mine. I think the next phrase goes something like this. Stay away. Out of my face. It's Mine, right? And because by nature, human beings are, are sinful, that is to say, we are selfish creatures. Unfortunately, as babies grow into children and children grow into teenagers and teenagers grow into adults, oftentimes that selfish propensity remains just as strong as it was in infancy. That's my car. That's my boat. That's my speedometer on my bicycle that I shared with last week. 
It's my house. That's my piece of property. It's my money. Have you heard this one in this culture? This is a political statement, I guess. It's my body. And what we're going to learn today is it's not my money. It's not my possessions. It's not my real estate. It's not my body. It belongs to God Almighty. And that's where we begin this morning. Step one of building a biblical theology of financial stewardship. We begin by saying this, God owns everything. He owns it all. There are no disclaimers. There are no footnotes. There is nothing else to really explain. There are no caveats here. The scriptures are clear. God owns it all. And I hope you saw that as a theme in these scriptures that we read. Here's what I want you to grasp this morning. God, you see, is the creator. He created all things. He's not only the creator of all things, because he's the creator, that gives him full rights of ownership. Every asset, every piece of property, every possession, every investment, even gold, every jewel, every dollar belongs to him. Indeed, you could say it like this, every nickel belongs to the living God. Randy Alcorn has helped me a great deal over the last several years of I, as I have taken time to, to read and study and explore this matter of financial stewardship. I would commend uh, his books to you. One of the things that Randy says is this, you belong to God, not yourself. He is the only one who has the right to do what he wants with your life, your body, sexual behavior, money, possessions, everything. God doesn't just owns the, own the universe. He owns you and me. And I want to stop for a moment. I want to pause and have you take a breath to prepare yourself for this next statement. Because this is a, a, a statement that is, is dripping with worldview significance. Listen to this. Randy Alcorn says, we are twice his. And before I give you the answer, I want you to consider, what do you think he's thinking about? When he says that we are twice his, what's on his mind? Here's what he says. We are twice his, first by creation. Second, by redemption. First, by creation. Second, by redemption. If you embrace those words, and I I certainly hope you do, that will shake your Christian worldview to the very foundation. That God owns you because He created you, and then He redeemed you if you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God not only is the creator, we recognize this, that God has authority over everything that he has made. Therefore, this places us in an extremely sobering position. And that leads us to step two. Step one, God owns it all. Step two, God delegates his resources, as we learned last week, and he charges each of us to be good stewards. Now, the notion of biblical stewardship that we began to unpack last week begins 
in the pages of the Old Testament. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we will look at this very, very important statement that concerns stewardship. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is just on the heels of God creating man and woman. Verse 27, he created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. Listen to the stewardship agreement. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see, this statement of biblical stewardship is a comprehensive statement. Notice the word everything. Adam and Eve is given charge over everything. They are to be good stewards of everything the Lord God has given them. But then look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Now he addresses the man in particular, and while you're Moving forward to Genesis chapter 2, I need to say something very important. Is in American culture in particular, we are seeing a blurring of gender distinctives. We are seeing that, that many people, even in the church, pay no regard to the, the role distinctions that exist between males and females. There was once a day, you see, when a man was seen as the head of his household. Because that's what the scripture says. It's even a countercultural thing for me to question American culture, is it not? But the scriptures tell us this. The man, the husband, is the head of his household. He and his wife are equal before God Almighty, but there are rule distinctions. Notice what occurs in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and he put him in the garden... Of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, there are two words that are very important here that are highlighted for you on the screen. The first word is work, and that word literally means to, to make things grow. Some words that reflect the heart of this word would include uh, a man who is committed to nurturing or cultivating or building up or guiding or ruling. The Lord God took Adam and he put him in the garden and he charged him to work. But notice the next word, the word keep. The word keep. This word means to, to protect and to sustain progress. Some words that would reflect the heart of the word keep are uh, watching over, the idea of caring for, a man who is committed to maintaining or guarding something. And so two words that, that correspond to the words work and keep are the words service, which corresponds to work, and leadership, which corresponds to the word keep. And so you recall from last week that a good steward does what? A good steward takes care of things. A good steward manages things for the glory of God. And so what is Adam called to do? He is called, or he is a steward who is called upon by God to serve and to lead. This is what Richard Phillips describes as the masculine mandate, which is a fancy way of just describing stewardship that Adam is charged with in every subsequent man. Dr. Phillips says this, the masculine mandate 
is to be spiritual men placed in real-world, God-defined relationships as lords and servants under God to bear God's fruit by serving and leading or by working and keeping. And so you see, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, God has been graciously delegating resources for His people to steward. Those resources, as we have learned in, in sermons in the past, include things like time and talent and treasures, among other things. But here's the key. As we turn our attention specifically to treasures or to finances, the way that we manage our money, the way that we manage our money is a barometer that gauges what we think about the owner of the money. Now, I don't want to be naive this morning because I just probably offended a whole group of people. If the statistics are right and very few people give on a regular basis, then what I'm about to say and what I just said could be highly offensive that, that the way you view your money is a gauge or a barometer and it tells you and everyone around you exactly what you think about God. Exactly, exactly what does the principle propose? The principle proposes this, is that if you pay little regard in the area of tithing, that says an awful lot about your view of the living God. Remember step one, God owns everything. Step two, God delegates his resources to his people and charges us then to be good stewards. And then there's a, there's a third step that I want you to pay close attention to. And that is that good stewards have the kingdom of God as their first priority. Good stewards have the kingdom of God as their first priority. And I want you to think about these things this morning really in a, on a large scale. Because here's what automatically enters the minds of most people. When they hear a message on financial stewardship, when they hear a message on tithing, it generally goes like this. Ah, oh, I see. I get it. The church needs money. Oh, I get it. We're behind in the budget. I want you to erase those thoughts from your mind, and I want you to think on a larger scale than merely the church budget. Because when we talk about matters of financial stewardship, when we talk about tithing, we'll address this more next week, really what we have in mind are the, the broad kingdom purposes of Almighty God. We are obligated before God to steward the resources that He has graciously given us. Why? For the expansion of God's kingdom. I want you to think about that. What the expansion of God's kingdom looks like. When Jesus came, when his earthly ministry began, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. But the kingdom of God has not come in its fullness. There will come a day when Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. There will come a day when the kingdom comes in all its glory. Right now, the kingdom is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. One writer says it like this. The kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, his authority. Now, many of you have heard of the so-called bucket list. In fact, there is even a, a rather well-known movie with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman called The Bucket List. You know it very well, and... The bucket list is something that many of you have thought about. 
I've thought about it as well. You say, I want to visit a particular country before I help me. No, 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 no. I want to visit a particular country before I kick the bucket. There we go. How many of you have a country you want to visit before you kick the bucket? Good, two of you. Let me try a different one. I want to ride every roller coaster in America before I kick the bucket. Anyone? I'm, I'm bad. Oh, there, whoa, we got a couple. There we go. I want, to, I want to swim with the dolphins before I kick the bucket. I want to go to every major league ballpark before I kick the bucket. Some of you can probably tell this is a little bit autobiographical, right? I want to go to a, a, a certain set of restaurants. I want to, I want to visit a, a certain place in America. There's all these things I could do before I kick the bucket. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with having a desire to do these things. I believe that goals are a good thing. But Russell Moore identifies something that's deeply troubling about the scope of these bucket list dreams. And again, I'm about to make a a worldview statement that could very well shatter some of the things that you have held dear in days past. Here's what he says about the bucket list. The hidden subtext is this. You only live once. Russell Moore says the assumption behind this thought is deeply unchristian. The idea that our span of life is merely the next 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 years. But if Jesus is telling us the truth, our life planning ought to be about the next trillion years and beyond. If we assume that What's waiting for us beyond the grave is a postlude rather than a mission and an adventure. We will cling tenaciously to the status quo, or at least the parts we like. We will want to, just like the pagans, want to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Do you see how easy it is to embrace a worldview that comes directly from a pagan culture? Because these are the things I want to accomplish. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Russell Moore continues by reminding us the importance of embracing now a kingdom mentality. He says, unless corrected by a holistic vision of the kingdom, we will abstract the concerns of this stage of life from the next because we will see no overlap between the two, except that this one is where we receive the gospel to ferry us over to the next. We will then misunderstand what the Bible means when it tells us to focus our minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things, that our citizenship is in heaven. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. George Elvin Ladd, a a man who wrote prolifically about the kingdom of God, said this prayer that Jesus uttered is a petition for God to reign, to manifest his kingly sovereignty and power, to put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of his divine rule that God alone may be king 
over the world. Another writer says the kingdom of God, both now and in the age to come, is ultimately about what Paul is referring to when he says that we are hidden with Christ in God. He says we find our life and mission in Jesus' own rather than fitting him into the kingdom we designed for ourselves. We pour ourselves into loving, serving, and working because these things are the seeds and the tasks God has given us in the next phase. That is to say, good stewards have a kingdom mentality that the kingdom of God is the first priority of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these, in many ways, these three steps are are very basic steps. But I trust that a paradigm shift is, is occurring in your thinking today. That you're seeing finances in a, in a new light, in a light that, that honors God. Remember, God owns it all. God delegates those resources to his people and charges us to be good stewards. And good stewards are charged with embracing a kingdom mentality. This morning, I want to close by offering nine important action steps. Nine action steps as you consider the construction of your personal biblical theology of financial stewardship. I want to begin here by making this charge, and that is to reevaluate your focus. To reevaluate your focus. What does that look like? It says, You go to God and ask, God, am I spending too much time in this area? Am I too driven in that area? Have have my priorities become all tangled up? The Bible says in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The question I would have at this point is, are you focused on the kingdom of God? This is something I have to constantly reevaluate in my life. Am I focused more on the world or am I focused more on the world to come? Do I have a bucket list mentality? And as as I was studying for this message, I, I was cut to the quick. I was challenged because there are many things that I would love to do before I die. There are many things I would love to do before I breathe my last, but the big picture is like this. I need to plan not for the next 40 or 50 or 60 years, but as Alcorn says, I mean, as Russell Moore says, I need to plan for the next 3 trillion years. How do we do that? By reevaluating our focus. Number two, I want to encourage you to realign your priorities. To realign your priorities. It doesn't take much, I've learned over the years, for my car to get out of alignment. Have you ever experienced that? When it does, it's a pretty simple simple uh, uh, process. You take it to the shop, and you get it realigned. In the Christian life, I believe we too need to experience realignment. And that realignment looks like this. We turn our eyes to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. That say, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Number three, I want to encourage you to recalibrate your affections and your expectations. To recalibrate your affections and your expectations. Instead of fixating our attention on the things of the world, we should be riveted, as we've already seen, on the things to come. Instead of having our affections drawn to things in this life, our affections should desire things in the kingdom to come. One writer says it like this, We live now in this demon-haunted earth, but we wait for a demon conqueror from heaven. We rejoice and we groan at the same time. We are warriors, yet but joyful warriors. We are not slouching to Gomorrah. We are marching to Zion. And so we recalibrate our affections and our expectations. Number four, we refuse to be swayed by the worldly system. Young people are especially vulnerable, I think, in this area. Because if you don't have the latest jeans or the latest shoes or the latest hoodie or the latest, latest clothes or the latest car, or the latest gadgets, or the latest phone, you're out of it. But the Word of God tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Number five, and this is really where the rubber meets the road, I urge you to, to repent to repent where the Holy Spirit reveals sin in your life. Have you seen that over the years, maybe even over the last 20 years, that the word repent is falling out of common use? The words repent and hell and sin, these are important biblical words that we need to embrace. And the charge for us today is if the Holy Spirit reveals, listen, And he names you by name and he tugs at your heart and says, it's time to get your financial priorities in order as we repent. And remember that when the Holy Spirit reveals sin in your life, it is always an act of graciousness. The scripture says that God's kindness leads you to repentance. And so if the Holy Spirit, if you find the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart this morning, and I trust and I pray that he's doing that with many of us today, that you would repent, that you would turn from your sin, that you would listen, and that you would respond. That leads to the sixth charge, and that is to respond to the call of God. To put it as basically as I know how, we are called to respond and obey God. We are called to respond to and obey God. I can't think of a more practical way to obey God than submit to Him in the area of financial stewardship. Here would be a way to to uncover where you stand in this area. Many have written about this in years past, and it's it's a simple way to to gauge the barometer of our hearts. As you go home today, and you turn on your computer, or if you're an old school person, you open your checkbook, So it's either Quicken on your computer or a checkbook on your desk, and you look through the last 12 months and you say, how have I been doing? How have I been doing in the area of financial stewardship? Am I compromising or am I obeying Jesus in this way? Number seven, I want to challenge you also to revel in God's grace. You see, when you obey, and this is a a lesson I learned many, many years ago, when you obey God, you experience joy. Have you experienced that? You see, the world tells us when you obey Jesus, it's a drag. But the Bible tells us this. When you obey Jesus, you are filled with joy. 
I have talked to many people over the years about this matter of financial stewardship, and I'm keeping track. I have never talked to anyone who said, when I obeyed in the area of financial stewardship, I was filled with gloom and depressed. Every single person. I'm batting 100%. I, I, I dare anyone to challenge this. When you obey God in the matters of financial stewardship or anything else, you are filled with joy. You're filled with joy. So I want to encourage you to revel in the grace of God. John Piper says that grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. You see, sin is not our thing anymore. Sin is not our thing. Obeying God and experiencing the joy of Jesus is our thing. Number eight, and vitally important, number eight is remember the gospel. You see, it would be very easy to to be like a a, a typical person in the church to say, okay, Pastor Dave, I I see the principles. I realize this is what I need to do. And so I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to obey. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to obey. Know this, apart from the gospel, you have no desire to obey. You have no inclination to obey. You have no resources to obey. And so when we remember the gospel, we remember it is the gospel that enables every act of obedience. It is the gospel that enables every act of obedience. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. Principle number nine is one that probably does not even bear repeating, but it is vital and very important. Principle number nine is this, repeat. I was so tempted to put rinse and repeat, but I I resisted the urge. I guess I can send it because I just said it, right? Rinse and repeat. You walk through these steps of obedience. These are action steps that you'll need to review and to refresh on a regular basis. You know, there are times that I will go back to a sermon I preached 10 years ago, and I'll I'll walk through it, and I don't say this in pride, but I look at this, and I say, man, that was pretty good. I can't believe I said that 10 years ago. Well, you know what? I forgot it. Sometimes I'll do that with something I put together a year ago. Say, well, well, that's good. That must be plagiarized. That sounds good. Well, we are people who have short memory spans. And so we need to review these principles of biblical financial stewardship, reminding ourselves all along that God owns everything, that he has given us resources and charges us to be good stewards. And those stewards must have a kingdom-centered mentality. I'll close by giving you this charge. Just imagine that Christ Fellowship chose, as a church family, to be, to be obedient in the area of financial stewardship. What would happen? What would happen? In fact, let me encourage you to do this. If you want to know what would happen, I would encourage you to go to one of the elders and ask any of the elders, what would happen if we were faithful in the area of financial stewardship? You're going to get an earful that will encourage you and knock your socks off. This is an area that we cannot compromise in. So let me urge you, if you, last week as I, as I charged, if you are a faithful giver, my encouragement to you is keep up the good work. 
And may you experience the blessing of obedience. If you're here and you say, man, Pastor Dave, I... Like we learned last week, I'm kind of up and down, I'm hit and miss. My challenge to you is ramp it up and learn that obedience brings blessing and you will experience the joy of walking with your Savior. But if you're the third person and says, thanks but no thanks, not interested, the scriptures would say this, that the time to repent is today. Now these are things, and many of you know me and you know me well, you know that given my druthers, I would rather preach about something else. For most pastors to preach about money is not the first thing they want to preach about. And that is the truth. That is the reality. But Jesus talks so much about money. And so these are things that I cannot pass over and you cannot pass over. And we are obligated to open our Bibles to read the word of God and remember that God is the Lord over all creation. Therefore, he carries all the authority over us. We are charged to surrender, to obey, to submit. And when we do that, we find great joy and pleasure in walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the challenge before us. Uh, None of us are excluded from this challenge. I ask God that most important that you would help us to remember the gospel for it is the gospel of your son that enables us to obey, that inclines us to obey, that moves us in the right direction. We take credit for absolutely nothing. We recognize that it is only on the merits of Christ that we can come into your presence. It is only because of the merits of Christ, his death, burial and resurrection that we can have the right attitude, that we can embrace the right action, that we can have a desire to please you, to please our Savior. And so, God, as we march forward as a church family, may we march forward obediently. And my prayer, God, is that as we do that, we would experience your joy, that we would experience that blessedness that comes from obeying, not just in the area of financial stewardship, but in every area as we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus is Lord. Our desire is to submit to his lordship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.